Hey friends, it's Mark here. And I just want to tell you, things are happening at Unorthodox. This is an autumn to remember. This is the beginning of Jewish year 5782 to remember. This week, you're about to hear a special Halloween episode. In coming weeks, you're going to hear a special episode where we're back in Squirrel Hill for the third anniversary of that terrible shooting there. And also in the coming couple or three weeks, there's going to be the return of someone special. I'm not going to say who. You might remember her from times past. She might have been out on a kind of family leave and she she might be coming back excited and better than ever, answering your demands that she returned to the show because, frankly, it's not as good without her. So much more coming up between the high holidays and Hanukkah this year on Unorthodox. Things are happening. Things are great. You have stuck with us through a long, slow, hot dog days of summer. And, well, here we are in the cool, crisp fall in which the new breezes of 5782 are wafting through our big hair, our Harry's trimmed beards, our Rothy's shoes, and frankly, through Yiddishkeit at large. It's Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. We're grateful to you, our listeners, and we're excited that you're going to stick with us for the episode starting right now. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by two Jews, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. A very spooky, almost Halloween to you. All Hallow's Eve, a Samhain to you, a merry and yet eerie Samhain. And today we are joined by a special guest host, Gavriel Savit. Gavi is a young adult novelist. He's the author of The Way Back, which is this extraordinary fantasy with Jewish characters about the Grim Reaper and Judaism and the world beyond. And it's kind of a horror tale and it's like totally chilling and gripping. It's so great to have him here for a Halloween episode. Gavi is not only an old friend of the podcast, but he's let us record in his living room once before when we didn't have a studio. He's a, in addition to being a novelist, a former Broadway actor, a stellar violinist and singer. And we've just been wanting to get him on the show for a while. So uh, Gavriel Savit is here with us hosting. Gavi, how are you? I'm well. I'm super psyched to be back uh, and in the schmoozing chair rather than the... <laughs> flogging my book chair this time. But Mark, are you allowed to say Samhain? Do they allow you to say words in Irish anymore? <laughs> that's that's a deep callback to one of the early episodes of Unorthodox when I was canceled by the Irish-speaking community. Having to apologize to Irish Twitter was a really interesting early lesson in the internet about six years ago for me. I know how to say, and this is my home in Irish. Is that any good? Bring it. How do you say it? August Seishamawalia. Sorry, I'm like about to get canceled again. I was like, that's not, that's not really. <laughs> I, th I thought it was my goodness, my Guinness, but okay, yours works my too. My word, we're really, we're, we're going hard. I love you uh, folks of Ireland very much. Yeah, we love our Irish speaking friends because like our Yiddish speaking friends, they are engaged in a, in a language reclamation and survival project. And that is truly the Lord's work. We thought that Gavi would be the perfect person to help us host a special Halloween-themed episode, and so we're going to chat with him a little bit. Our Gentile of the Week is author Carrie Harris, who writes all sorts of books with monsters and murders, and sometimes even uh, some X-Men stuff. She talked with Liel about writing for the Marvel Universe and about her new book, a mashup of Bring It On and Stranger Things, which Bring It On and Stranger Things are two of my favorite things in the world. Somewhere in you, Mark Oppenheimer, there's a little wounded nerd aching to come out. And today we will liberate him. That's right. But wait a second. But I mean, Stranger Things, sure, but it's it's sort of broad 80s nostalgia in a way. And Bring It On is just the greatest cheerleading movie of all time. Is that really the test case for whether I'm a, I'm deeply nerdy? You say this as if there's like there's like a lot of competition for greatest cheerleading movie of all time? Like, what? how deep is the well? Well, Citizen Kane set the bar pretty high. Famously. I don't know if people know about the cut scene in which Orson Welles does three backflips in a miniskirt. Right. And, and, and then, you know, the, the middle reel of Shoah had, had its bits. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> you know, that's only the extended director's cut. Although, honestly, when, when the survivors sit and, and sing uh, cups with, like, tapping the cups on the floor, uh, that was a pretty charming moment. <laughs> See, now you're, I mean... It is true that there's a weird kind of homology between acapella movies and cheerleading movies, but I mean, I'm just going to argue that generically they're actually quite different. And what's his name? Skylar Astin can be in both of them. The great Jew Skylar Astin, whose name oh, originally was Skylar like Skylar Astin. Astin Schottenstein Goldfarb. Wait, but you're missing, actually, you're missing the great synthesis of the two genres, which is the ridiculous, ridiculous, I don't know, early 2000s comedy camp also starring Skylar Astin. And I think- What? I think also starring Anna Kendrick. What? About Stage Door Manor, the completely ridiculous musical theater camp. 
really synthesizes the two, all singing, all dancing. If nothing else, this little digression, which I insist we keep in the episode, <laughs> if nothing else, it's an opportunity to play not the Anna Kendrick version of Cups, but the original Miss You When I'm Gone, and it's amazing. You're gonna miss me when I'm gone. You're gonna miss me when I'm gone. Oh, I know you will miss me when I'm gone. You're gonna miss me by... I got my ticket for the long way round. Before we say goodbye to this topic, just take a moment and imagine Claude Lanzmann's Shoah recut with a soundtrack of You're Gonna Miss Me When I'm Gone. I'm not saying it works perfectly, but I'm just going to put it out there. I am probably more likely to watch it if it has right? <laughs> if it has some Anna Kendrick acapella in it. I'm not, I'm not lying. I will watch anything with Anna Kendrick in it. As will I. As will I watch <laughs> anything with Anna Kendrick. We, Gentile of the Week, please. Come on. How have we not booked Anna Kendrick yet? Wait, is she a Gentile? She seems like the Jewiest Jew in the world. Oh, no. She's a Gentile from Maine. From Maine? She's like an old New England wasp. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, who knows? It turns out everyone has a Jewish grandmother, but- I think she basically, she's certainly Gentile passing. Let me put it that way. I don't know. This is one for the J. Crew. J. Crew, do you have any evidence that Anna Kendrick is Jewish? Because that would break the Jewish internet. That would be amazing. We have our people on it. We have our Google alerts and no one's ever turned up evidence. Hannah Kendrick, we're sorry. (laughs) Liel spoke with Jew of the Week, Stacey Nelkin, who starred in the movie Halloween 3. And that's one of my favorite interviews of all time. Also, Dara Horn, the host of our Tablet Studios show, Adventures with Dead Jews, (laughs) shares a spine-tickling Jewish ghost story. Is there any other kind? So listen, we've never mashed up Judaism and Halloween and Fright Night and horror so well as in this episode. We're so glad that you you listeners are here along for the spooky hayride. Before we get into all that stuff, I just want to check in with my co-hosts of the day, Liel and Gavi, because they both they both have reports from the, the Midwest. I know it's controversial whether Pittsburgh's the Midwest, but Liel, I just want you to bring us up to date. You yanked your kids out of school. We talked about this for, uh, for two days. in the last episode. For two days, Correct. you went to see the Rolling Stones. It was brilliant, yes? It was out of this freaking world. These guys, you know, God bless them. It is unbelievable. Mick Jagger is 80 and he prances in this incredible fashion. My kids, of course, walked in. This is not their first rock concert, but their first kind of big arena thing. They had seen Paul McCartney, but they sit down and these spoiled young guns, the first thing they had to say is, this is, this is really loud. It's like, (laughs) yes, it's loud. It's the Rolling Stones. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J News. I'm just so chuffed to have with me two Jews who know a lot about nerddom, about fantasy, sci-fi, comic book culture, because in the news of the Jews this week, it's basically all stuff I can't comment on because it's all fantasy and sci-fi. I mean, (laughs) the news this week is there's a new Dune movie, Gavi's book, still climbing the charts, and he's working on another one. William Shatner, something about him going into space. I've just, it's all, so I want to take these one by one. And I want Gavi and Liel, who are my nerd culture Sherpas, if you will, my Gabayim, if you will. They're just (laughs) keeping me on the right course to tell me what's going on and is there a Jewish angle? So first of all, you walk into the Barnes and Noble and all of a sudden there's a new edition out of the Frank Herbert novel, Dune. Something's going on with it. I want somebody to explain to me what's going on and then somebody else to explain to me what's the Jewish angle. Gavi, What's going on? Dune is a really weird and interesting sci-fi novel. It's sort of Lawrence of Arabia in space. I'm actually kind of surprised (laughs) that it hasn't been canceled yet because it's all about this aristocratic kid whose name, I kid you not, could not be more Greek, Paul Atreides, who goes to the Middle East planet and like becomes Mashiach over the Bedouins there, which is kind of intense. It's hard to pick out what in Dune is Jewish and what is Orientalist, frankly, because there's a lot of like pseudo-Arabic in the text, but there's also some very clear pseudo-Hebrew. So like their word for the Mashiach that is coming is Kwisatz Haderach. And it turns out that this is a very light adaptation of like a Kabbalist magic thing, which is Kwisatz Haderach, which is the idea that some of these tzaddikim in like the first and second generation of Hasidus 
could travel long distances very quickly, like they could jump from one place to another. Wait, that is so baller. To say nothing of the fact that the main character's mother belongs to this kind of nunnish order of magical, mystical women who drive the entire plot, whose name is Bene Gesserit, which sounds to me like the name of a reconstructionist shul in Portland, right? Like, <laughs> oh, are, are you here for Shabbos at Bene Gesserit? Like, it's just so infused with it. And, and Gabi, I, I hear what you say when you say Orientalist. One reason why I always absolutely loved these books and keep reading them and rereading them and even read them to Lily when she was like seven, only to remember very quickly that there are some things in it that no no child should should ever, ever know about. Like massive sandworms? The sandworms being the least of it is the fact that, you know, at, at the core of this book is this notion of here are these great big trade federations, right? And they're trying to make interstellar intrigue and, and deprive each other of spice, which is like the kind of the currency of, of the universe. And at the heart of it, there's a person who comes to understand very sincerely when he decamps to the to the Middle East planet, right? To, to the Petah Tikva of the galaxy. Uh, <laughs> that, that religion matters. That rootedness matters. That place matters. That the rootless cosmopolitans or the rootless globalists cannot prevail over the faith of well-meaning, bearded, armed fanatics who have at their disposal uh, large sandworms. It is such a great novel of religious zealotry written with not an ounce of modern detachment and it will, for that reason, continue to stand alone. By the way, very much like Lord of the Rings, which is another adaptation of the same human sentiment. Frank Herbert, probably a Jew, right? No, not at all. Not a Jew. Hey, the first science fiction writer in history, other than Arthur C. Clarke. Was Arthur C. Clarke a Jew? No. <laughs> and in fact, Herbert, Herbert, one of those names that in America would sort of code Jewish, like a good sort of ersatz Jewish name like Green or Miller. But in its British context, like, you know, Milton or Sydney or just an old British name, right? Frank Herbert, just some wasp, some waspy dude, probably Anglican, probably Church of England. Meanwhile, Paul Atreides, the erstwhile Mashiach of Dune, is being played in this movie by the unimprovably named Timothée Chalamet, who is, of course... A Jew. I still have seen no movie with Timothy Chalamet in it, even though he's apparently what? very big for the Jews. I have not seen Call Me By Your Name, which was apparently very good. I don't know. What else? Little Women. He was in Little Women. Anyway, okay. So so definitely some Jewy angles to to Dune. Thank you for explicating that for me. There's some William Shatner news. Leo, you want to give me what's going on with, uh, with Captain Kirk? Captain Kirk became the oldest man to be launched into space, a courtesy of Jeff Bezos's immense, erect, penis-shaped space rocket uh, <laughs> called Deep Throat or Deep Blue or Blue Space or something like that. In a kind of a, a nice gesture, he invited Captain James Tiberius Kirk to be on his mission, which I think is kind of a, it's, it's a, what a huge missed opportunity because here's what we should have done. We should have all bought Planet of the Ape masks and upon Shatner's <laughs> return, just stood there all looking like, hello, the human is trying to escape. It would have been the funniest thing in the world. Damn you all to hell. <laughs> I'm shocked, Liel, that you're pronouncing it in the Goetia manner and not saying, as is proper, James Tveria Kirk. <laughs> James Tveria Elite Kirk. Uh, yeah, indeed. Didn't he like prep to go up by like playing his recording of Rocket Man? And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me back again to find I'm not the man they think I am back home. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. Rocket man. Burning out his... His prep for space was three consecutive colonoscopies and playing <laughs> rocket man. And then he made out with a green woman. And drinking five insures. I kid you not, when you don't pay attention to the news, as I don't, you get to a point where you're not sure what's real and what's not. So when you said Jeff Bezos' space rocket, I thought, wait, didn't Elon Musk have a space rocket? Oh, yeah. Wait a second. Didn't Richard Branson? Wait a second, Richard Branson. Wait, does NASA still exist? Wait, is are people just randomly shooting up into space? Can I go to the moon? I actually haven't followed any of this. It's like electric cars. One day, it's just pure <laughs> science fiction. The next day, Chevy makes one. And in the meantime, all I've done is raise kids and I tuned out for five years and didn't read the paper and didn't watch the late night shows. And I come back and there are Chevys making electric cars and rando people are going into space. You don't need NASA anymore. Talk about what's Jewish and what's Goyish. 
going into space. Jewish or Goyesh? All the Goyesh billionaires buy space rockets. You know you know what the Jewish billionaires do? They buy the freaking Mets. That's what they do. There's like, no, no, we want <laughs> suffering here on Earth, not in some other dimension. No, but this is a very good point because I think I think the reason that this is funny, right? The, the reason that 90-year-old William Shatner going up into space is funny is because it is actually inherently very Goyish to go to, like, why would you go to space? There's no good pastrami in space. <laughs> like, just sit down. You know what I mean? That's It's the Mel Brooks thing. Jews in space, right? Like, it's inherently absurd. Yeah, and William Shatner ought to have listened because if, if you heard him since he'd come back. Oh, wait, he's back? How long did you think he was going to be out there? <laughs> well, didn't, he, didn't he only go on Tuesday or something? I mean, I, I thought he was going to It was, it was just weeks. up and back, man. It was it was quick. But then when he returned, he, he gave all these soliloquies that you could be generous and kind and soulful and wonderful and loving and, and call them very touching about the planet and its blueness and the importance of, you know, keeping the one planet that we have. Or you could be me and say that, you know, that trip to the uh, past the atmosphere did not do well for the uh, cognitive abilities of this nice nonagenarian. I mean, George Takei would have been much funnier in space. Oh my. Wait, but there's late breaking additional Star Trek news, which is uh, that Brent Spiner, the Jewish data, has just released a new book called Fan Fiction, which is this bizarre mashup of like memoir and stalker mystery. Apparently it starts with someone sending Jean-Luc Picard a pig penis. It's a whole thing. Um, Anyway, I'm very excited for it. Also, I went to his Wikipedia page just to double check that Brent Spiner was in fact Jewish. And I I really just very briefly want to read this early life section to you because, you know, everyone goes to Wikipedia in order to learn if the celebrity (laughs) is Jewish. Uh, They really left it very ambiguous on this particular Wikipedia page. Brent J. Spiner was born on February 2nd, 1949 in Houston, Texas to Sylvia Nay Schwartz and Jack Spiner, a Jewish family who owned a furniture store. At age 29, Jack Spiner died of kidney failure when his son was 10 months old. After his father's death, Spiner was adopted by his mother's second husband, Saul Mintz, whose surname he used between 1955 and 1975. And just to make sure that you really get the point, at the end of this paragraph they have, he is of the Jewish religion. <laughs> He's of, he is of the Hebrew persuasion. <laughs> if Saul Mintz and Schwartz didn't tip you off. And Sylvia, and the mom named Sylvia. What I love about <laughs> Wikipedia is that depending on who the author of the entry is, it'll sometimes just come out and be like, this guy is a big yid. Whereas the New York Times obituaries, the New York Times obituary for Brett Spiner will be like, he was of Eastern European ancestry. His family had emigrated from Europe sometime between World War I and World War II. I mean, you know, the Times are like, can write 8,000 words on someone and, and all the readership of the Times is thinking is, but was he Jewish? And they'll never tell you if he was Jewish. Whereas Wikipedia is like, Sylvia and Schwartz and he's of the Jewish persuasion and Saul Mintz and he was a Bialy eater and he was circumcised Fred on the Spiner eighth day. Is lactose intolerant. <laughs> That's the whole entry. I'm not the man they think I am. No, no, no. I'm a rocket man. A rocket man. Burning out his fuse out here alone. Jew of the Week, Stacey Nelkin, is an actor, author, and substance abuse counselor, and lots of other really serious things. But in 1982, she appeared in the horror film Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, as character Ellie Grimbridge. And that led her on a journey, which she described to Leah Leibowitz. Our guest today is the great Stacey Nelkin, who is now a very serious person, but she's also an amazing actress who has the eternal distinction of having played Ellie, the final girl, as we say in the horror genre, in the great and misunderstood Halloween 3 season of The Witch. She's also my dear friend. Stacey, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much, Liel. All right. So this is 1982. Where are you in your career at that point? Oh, at that point, I was actually pretty much in demand. I was, I had done a few films. I had done a bunch of TV miniseries, all good leading parts. 
so in all honesty, I wasn't particularly interested in doing a horror movie, especially because I don't like horror movies. I get really scared. I was traumatized by watching The Exorcist when it came out in the movie theaters, and I literally could not sleep for three weeks. But hold on. This is, this is not just a horror movie. This is Halloween. This is like the absolute kind of core, the heart of the entire sort of horror universe. This is... This is the big time. Have you watched the original one and two? I did as soon as I got word that they were looking for this character. I got the role because I had worked with a wonderful makeup artist who's no longer with us named Ron Walter, who did my makeup on a miniseries called The Last Convertible for NBC. Ron and I were very close, and Ron had already been hired to be the makeup artist for Halloween 3, and he kept telling me, you know, look, they haven't found the lead, you should audition, and I kept poo-pooing it because it really didn't interest me, and I, I did somehow get to see part one, and, you know, to me, it was a lot of gratuitous showing topless girls and blood, and that really didn't interest me. So he said, come on, just read the script. When I read the script, I loved the character of Ellie. And there was not the same kind of what I thought of, uh, you know, gratuitous blood and guts and tatas. <laughs> so um, I went in and read. And as I was walking in my apartment on the way home from the audition, the phone was ringing. And it was my agent saying, you got the part, you got to go to makeup, you know, this afternoon. <laughs> and uh, tomorrow you're on your way to Eureka, California. And I did. And we should say that Roger Ebert, the Pope of American movie criticism, said that your performance was, and I quote, the one saving grace in the film, <laughs> calling you an absolute marvel and saying you <laughs> wish there was a better role there for you. But but it's a really also curious movie because it's the only one in the entire series that doesn't feature the iconic Michael Myers, right? The boogeyman of the entire franchise. Exactly. The original idea was that they were going to diverge from one and two. They made our season of The Witch, and they were going to have a series of different Halloween stories every year and make a different Halloween film with the Halloween name attached. And you can imagine, I mean, that gives a lot of leeway for a lot of phenomenal stories. And I think because ours did not do well <laughs> at the time, <laughs> which is kind of an understatement, they went back to part four, Michael Myers, four, five, six, I don't know, what are they on now? 1938. Like yeah. <laughs> Whatever they're on. I mean, in, in their defense, you know, any any plot that involves transporting Stonehenge to the United States is you know, a little bit kind of shaky from the start. What is it like <laughs> to, to act in one of these films? And what is it like to step into the shoes of the immortal Jamie Lee Curtis? Oh, but see, I didn't step into her shoes. I didn't see it that way at all. And I know Jamie Lee from my L.A. days. And she did a terrific job when she did one and two and whatever else she did. I wish I had a famous, now I'm going to be really nasty. <laughs> I wish I had a famous mother and father right. who could have opened a gazillion doors for me. But, you know, I thought she was great. And um, I don't feel like Ellie had anything to do with her character or anything like that. So that was Actually, what interested me is that I saw Ellie as like a, a spunky, interesting person. It was not the babysitter who, you know, was wearing short shorts and no top and the guy comes in and scares the hell out of you. Now, you make this film and then you go on to have a really great career filled with memorable moments and, and great, great roles. But for some reason, it's this one film to which the nerds insist you return. And there are cons, mm -hmm. right? Conferences year in and year out. Yes. Tell us about this bizarre occurrence. Liel, it is such a bizarre occurrence. You know, Halloween 3 was the one movie I never really talked about because it was a horror film. And as I said, I'm not a big fan of the genre. I'm kind of a snob, if you will. No, I am a snob. 
And so it was just not one that I talked about. And because it tanked so badly, it was easy to just kind of bury that one and not ever come back to it until about 20 years ago when it somehow found this incredible cult following. So 20 years ago, a gentleman named Sean Clark, who is a rep for a lot of these conventions, I didn't even know there was such a thing that existed, a horror convention. Never heard of it, never knew about it. I knew about Comic-Con, but I didn't think there were that many people that were into horror films. And let me tell you, there are a lot of horror fans. (laughs) And so for the last 20 years, you know, basically once a year or sometimes more, I go to these conventions. Now, it's changed a little since COVID, but pre-COVID, people would be dressing up in these insane, fabulous costumes. Of course, there's the requisite Michael Myers walking around, guys in costume. And it's it's really interesting because it's like people get their their inner creepy, scary person out. And they literally walk around these conventions in the character, as the character. Now, Stacey, you, you've, you've since become a tremendously insightful and successful therapist. Well, substance abuse counselor. Sorry to correct you. Substance abuse counselor. But, but someone with a deep insight into the psychology of the individual. Switch, yeah. switch roles for a second and, and tell us, What's going on with these people? And I count myself among these people because I've, I've never gone to cons, but I'm, <laughs> I'm so obsessed with the series that like I paid for a subscription to a streaming service to watch the latest installment, Halloween Kills, literally the second it came out. What's wrong with us? <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong at all. I think it's a fascination with scary things. I think there's a certain adrenaline rush we all get when we're scared. Some people really like that. I think first date, second date, going to a horror movie has always been something that's out there because the girl can get scared and the guy can protect the girl. It's there's a titillation that happens, right? It's that adrenaline. What's a con like for you? You come and you sit down at at the dais at the table and what happens next? What do these people want? Who are they? Oh, at the most recent ones I did, the people are people working in supermarkets, UPS drivers, a lot of them. And I kind of feel guilty taking their money, a lot of them, because they're really, most of them are kind of minimum wage workers, a lot of just dedicated horror fans. What do they want you to do? I mean, what what, what is their expectation? Oh, other so, than the so I, the- I sit at a table, I have a display of pictures. There's a banner behind me. And this is true of all of the actors. And you're kind of like setting up a shop and people walk around and they will browse. Or if they know, you know, who you are and they're excited to come see you there because they heard in advance that you're there, they will, you know, stand at your table and wait on a line if you're lucky enough to have that. They will come up. I will talk to them. I like to spend as much time as I can. And they ask for whichever picture they like. And I ask, what would you like on it? Most of them want me to write the line, um, where would you like to sleep, Dr. Chalice? (laughs) Some some of them like the line, relax, I'm older than I look. Those are the two big ones. Stacey, on on behalf of my people, I apologize. We're horrible. (laughs) No, it's great. And I sign it and then they come behind the table with me. Somebody takes a picture of the two of us together and they pay me 30 bucks. That's how the conventions work. Do you hate Halloween now? Do you love it? Have you grown fond of it? What what is your emotional relationship to this holiday that somehow (laughs) came to define you for all these years? I absolutely love it. I really do. Because it's one of those just amazing surprises in life. You know, you let something go. And the universe has something else in store for you. <laughs> I just think it's it's so cool. I think it is so cool. Because as I said, it was something I totally buried down along with some, you know, episodes of Chips and Simon and Simon and, you know, whatever <laughs> else. Like, what? It's just amazing to me. And I get to see Tom Atkins every year. I've seen him more since, you know, in the last 20 years than I did the entire time shooting. And it's just great to meet the fans. We are all so crazy. People are so 
interesting, infinitely interesting. And so I love that. What is the most bizarre question you received during one of these cons? Well, there's one question that a lot of people ask, and it kind of bugs me because to me, it doesn't make sense. But a lot of people will come up and will say, do you think Ellie was a robot the whole time? <laughs> and I say, right, okay, so you see the, that that's ludicrous, oh. right? It's like, no, why would I have slept with him? Why would I have gone on this entire journey? No, when I get tied up and then you next see me in the car, that's when the transition happens, right? And then they go, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stacey Nelkin, on, on behalf of many, many unwashed, neck-bearded, socially awkward nerds like myself, I'm very grateful for, for your patience. And I think I speak for all of us when I say I would be delighted if Ellie Grimbridge came back for Halloween 3 Redux, the reawakening. That would be awesome. I just have to get my head put back on and my arm. <laughs> I could go without the arm. I think I need the head though. We, we could we could sort <laughs> something out. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you, Liel. Be well. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. You may not like this new mailbox song, but we haven't heard from you in so long. So we thought we'd get your attention, shine a light. Come on, pick up your pen and write. To the mailbox, friends, the big piece of mail from the J Crew this week came in the Facebook group. A woman named Susan, whom we love. And I want to be clear that when we fight, it's all in the family here at Unorthodox. So we, we, we call her out here because we love her and we love the feedback. She listened to the last episode and was peeved that Liel and I were doing bad German accents. She wasn't peeved that they were bad. She was just peeved that we were doing accents. But, but what do you mean bad? <laughs> so she wrote, Mark, Liel, I think you need to do better slash grow up when you talk about Germany and Germans. You're mocking the way they speak is just rude. And truly, the Germans have come a long way since the 40s. I'll interject here and say that's a low bar. <laughs> like, <laughs> but fair enough. I take, we take the point. It's become a good place for Jews to live, and some do. 
I have been imp- far fewer than in the 1930s, but nevertheless, <laughs> I have been impressed with my interactions with Germans and took a brief trip there a few years ago and was likewise impressed. They have Holocaust memorials, museums, etc. They do. What they don't have is Bubby. <laughs> they, they don't have Jews. Six million missing, but okay. We and they all know what happened in the 40s. It can't be undone, but the Germans in the main have done, I think, a pretty good job at acknowledging what happened in an effort to make sure it doesn't happen again. I cringed throughout your piece in the most recent episode about their awards show. Okay. Let me have first crack at this. First of all, thank you for writing for us. We, we mock you, we tease you as we do family, but you are making a serious point. Germany has taken their past much more seriously than a lot, than pretty much every country surrounding them, all of which are in greater denial about what happened than Germany. Second, I agree with you about the attempt at commemoration. My father was there. He did a kind of roots trip to Germany a few years ago. Again, didn't encounter many Jews, but encountered a lot of really wonderful people who wanted to help him on his journey and and point out places to him and help him figure out where our family lived before we came over to the United States. And it is a a friendly and open and non-scary place for a Jew to travel, which is not true everywhere in the world. Big props to the Germans for that. That said, let me give three three points here and then I want to hear what Liel and Gavi have to say. Number one, when I do German accents, I do them as someone whose ancestors were German and Austrian and spoke German. So am I not allowed to do the accents of my people? I mean, to say that I can't is somehow to say that I'm mocking people who are not my people. Like I'm not a real German. I'm a Jew mocking the Germans. But no, I'm actually a German mocking the Germans. So come on, like give me a little leeway there. That's number one. Oppenheimers be Oppenheiming is what you're saying. (laughs) Number two, but really that's protesting too much because the truth is accent humor is okay. It really is. And and especially it's, it's not like we're punching down at an oppressed people here. We're punching up. Also. The thread continued, and if people want to join our Facebook group, they can see it. It continued in this vein of like, yeah, you just can't do accents, which basically gets rid of like all of Mel Brooks, all of Monty Python, (laughs) all of comedy. Like, I just, I don't like that at all. I don't think that's what Susan meant to imply, but I do think that's the logical place where it goes. And like accents are pretty funny a lot of the time. And obviously they have to be done sensitively and they have to be, you know, you have to take care with them. But I don't think a Jewish podcast doing German humor for a largely Jewish audience is Will ever not be okay, ever. In the history of mankind, are we never, ever not allowed to make fun of the fucking Germans? Agavi, am I on the right page here? Are you with me, brother? Of course you're on the right page. You you know what what six million cousins buys you is is the ability to make fun of Werner Herzog whenever you want. You're allowed (laughs) to do it. You can do it. They can't stop you. You, you Don't stare try. deep into the German psyche and all you saw there was the emptiness of the abyss. If, if ever you're in a bad mood and you want to have a better day, go to the grocery store and narrate your grocery store trip in the voice of Bernard. <laughs> and then I walked through the door and found that there were peaches on sale. It was a truly magical experience. And, and here's the thing, you know, not a popular opinion, but I think a very true one. We obviously suffered mightily during World War II. We had a genocide, the scale of which is unprecedented in modern and arguably any other era of history. But we didn't lose. We came out of it okay. We bounced back. We have the same culture that we had since time immemorial. We built a state that is getting stronger and more impressive. Our culture is thriving. There is creation. There is life. Germany will never recover. Germany is over. The culture, the country that gave us Goethe and Schiele and and Wagner and all these great creations, that country died in 1945. That country is now just basically some kind of phantom that spends the decades pitifully beating its own chest and performing all kinds of acts of contrition. Like, oh yes, yes, no, of course we will engage in radical politics, which then in turn gives us things like the Pader Meinhof gang. Truly a, a terrible cesspool of some kind of combination of, you know, liberal virtue signaling, pity display, really historical anachronism. I, I can't stress enough. No, wait, I actually, I actually, I'm going to push back on that because I don't think that's true. I don't think Germany is over. Germany is very different now than it was before. Name one thing that that country has produced that is not, you know. Angela Merkel, who arguably has kept the EU together over the course of the last oh, decade. That puts us in a discussion in the EU, which we should not. <laughs> yeah, Liel, that's not to her, to, with Liel, that's not to her credit. He can't wait for no, the EU to fall. My, my point is, I think that we can and probably should draw a distinction between light accent play and declaring the end of a civilization, which I'm not really on board with. Look, I mean, as the the writer in very 
intelligently and sensitively points out, like if you spend time with Germans who are taught very early in their education about what happened and about what their grandparents did, they often are very sensitive and thoughtful about it. Like I, in some ways, I think if I had to talk about the Holocaust with anyone, it would be a Jew first and then a German before anyone else, because they're the only other people who have sat and thought carefully and sensitively about it. In some ways, it's a trauma that draws two people together. To me, I mean, I actually would love to get a phone call, you know, again, we're at 914-570-4869 from someone who understands, is there a common sense case against doing accents that I'm missing? And is there a special case against like with Germans, we need to drop the fight. We need to put down our armor and just hug. Because to me, I just go back to the fact that comedy is really on the ropes right now. People don't think anything's funny. We need to get back to silliness and slapstick and ridiculosity. And a lot of that is going to be is going to be accents because all of us have an accent, right? Like and if we travel somewhere else and attempt to speak the language, we have an accent and we become an absurdity. This is true. We all have accent. It's very true what you say. I'm just waiting for the letter when someone writes in and talks about how offensive Liel's Israeli accent is. <laughs> I think we've got think we've gotten that letter. We've certainly gotten letters from people who think he's a fake Israeli. They're like, but come I on, his English is so good. I don't have he's, the right to do the accent of my people. You, he's been gone so long. His English is so good. He's not. We we definitely have people who think he's like a Mossad plant who's not a real Israeli. You you're going to miss me when I'm gone is what I say. <laughs> tap 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 tap. He was recruited tap. out of Southern Illinois State University as an undergrad at Hillel. How and dare you? Some the University of Illinois at Springfield. Hey there, producer Sarah Fredmanator here. Uh, I was a little busy this week, so I had to skip out on the recording, uh, but I wanted to weigh in on the great trick-or-treating debate. For those of you who don't know, um, I'm the token modern Orthodox Jew on the team, and so sometimes I'm called up to represent that view. Regarding the question as to why some Orthodox Jews like myself don't celebrate Halloween, I think... It's natural to think that it's because, oh, witchcraft or demons. And there's certainly people who won't read Harry Potter because it's witchcraft or who separate themselves from things like Halloween because of that. Honestly, in my community, in my family, with the people I know, that's not it at all. It, 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 witchcraft and demons have never come up. It's just we're, we're separated a little bit from mainstream American culture. And, and for some reason, we decided Thanksgiving is something we do. Thanksgiving is something we do because we're Americans and we don't do Halloween because it's minhaga goyim. It's, it's what the goyim do. I don't have a better reason than that, but I did not grow up trick-or-treating. And now with small children of my own, I do not allow them to go trick-or-treating. Uh, they do have friends who go trick-or-treating, but, but generally they understand that it's not a holiday that we celebrate. And they really get a kick out of participating by handing out candy. Actually, we live on a very quiet block and we don't have a lot of trick-or-treaters. So we go to my parents' house uh, who live on a busier corner. And when their friends from school or from the neighborhood come by, they happily give them out candy. Um, so far, so good. So I think we're managing over here. Gentile of the Week, Carrie Harris, is a geek of all trades, a G-O-A-T, a goat, who writes genre fiction for all ages. If it has monsters, mayhem, or murder, she's in it. And Liel Leibowitz, also someone who's into monsters, mayhem, and murder, sat down with her to talk about writing for the Marvel Universe and her Lovecraftian book, Elder God Dance Squad. Carrie Harris, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. I want you to take us on your journey. What do you realize you have other interests than other healthier humans? I actually lived in a small town in Ohio and we had one bookstore and there was one spinning rack of comics. I saw an X-Men comic and on the cover was a character named Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride is a suburban teenager. It was the first time I'd seen a superhero that I thought that could be me. I used to write really awful fan fiction about Kitty and Carrie, and we would get into all kinds of trouble and shenanigans. It did not survive, and that's a good thing because I can look back on it fondly 
and not subject myself to reading it. So I wonder what the transition might have been like when you go from young girl who reads these Kitty Pie comics and, and writes adventures to a celebrated author who's now writing entire sort of novellas in the Marvel Universe, stuff that is now canonical and, by the way, rocking. The first time this happens, does it feel very different? Is there a moment of like, oh my God, I am now playing for the Lakers as opposed to pretending I'm playing for the Lakers? Oh yeah, I cried. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not ashamed to admit it either. I cried. I stumbled into this opportunity. I've spent years kind of honing my craft and learning how to be a writer. And I signed up with a company to write books based on board games. The week that I signed up, they inked a deal with Marvel. And I sent them an email and I said, please, 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 what do I have to do to just get a chance to pitch? I will show up on your doorstep and cosplay if that's what it takes. <laughs> Luckily, they didn't make me do that. I would have gone to the end of the world and back just for a chance. And I'm still pinching myself. It's been two years now. Every time I go and see a Marvel movie or watch something on Disney Plus and they show the trailer where they show Marvel and they show all the characters, it's different now because I feel like I'm some small part of that. And that is the coolest thing ever. As we say in the Jewish tradition, Diana, it would have been enough to just be a writer for the Marvel Universe. But your own books are a delight. I want to talk particularly about Elder God Dance Squad. I'm going to botch the premise here so badly, although I have all kinds of ideas, including, you know, kind of like Stranger Things meets, etc. Tell us the incredible premise for this book. The easiest way to explain it is it's Stranger Things meets Bring It On. <laughs> there are dance battles to save the world from eldritch monsters that are crawling up from beneath the school. And the only people who stand in their way are the high school dance squad. Led by a heartbroken, resilient, wonderful young woman who literally saves the world by dancing. Yes. And there are girls with gills and badly spelled texts and dreams about Spock. And I tend to like my horror on the funny or campy side. So it's definitely that. Historically speaking, I'm, I'm hardly the first one to note this or notice it, but Horror as a genre tended to really flourish in times where things felt a little bit more uncertain. You know, the, the famous uh, Universal Monsters came in the 30s when the world was, was a little bit shaky. The 70s post-Vietnam gave us another great big run. I don't mean to trouble you, but ours are not very stable or subtle times. Do you think we're going through another horror renaissance? That's a very reasonable way to look at it. I'm trying to think of who said this, but there's a quote and it talks about how fantasy stories aren't valuable because they teach us dragons are real. They teach us that dragons can be beaten. That's what it's about, that fantasy and horror show us that the monsters can be beaten. You know, if I'm doing my job, you shouldn't feel like you've been hit over the head with the message. But in Elder God Dance Squad, the threats are pretty out there. I'm fairly sure that you're not going to walk down the street tomorrow and see tentacle eyeballs. That's not likely to happen. Although if it does, please call me because I want to see that. Is there a, a short passage from Elder God that you would like to read? I kind of think, and there's a minor spoiler here, but I kind of think that the scariest thing in this book is the boyfriend because you're not going to see the tentacle eyeballs, but those relationships, it starts out kind of funny, unhealthy relationship, but at some point, it's not funny anymore. And Audrey, the main character, is fighting with him and he attacks her. It's a moment of, I think, true uh, bravery. So if you'd like to hear some of that, I can read a little bit of that. Sure. Constantine says, you should come and see for yourself. She made a show of shuddering. No, thank you. That's gross. We're over, Constantine, and the sooner you realize that, the better. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've just remembered I'm supposed to help Manami with the soundboard. He stood in the middle of the hallway, and she slowed as she approached him. When she drifted left, he did too. When she went right, he followed. She sighed in exasperation. Constantine, if you don't leave me alone, I'll scream. And most of the football team will come out here. Even if I wasn't friends with Tank, they wouldn't let you pull this crap. You'll be lucky if you don't get punched in the face. Let me show you what I mean, he said, ignoring her. 
He lunged at her, taking her by surprise and slamming her against the wall so hard that her teeth clacked shut. Before she could shout for help, his mouth covered hers, nearly swallowing her whole. All she managed to get out was a single strangled squeak. He slopped his spit all over the lower half of her face, from the bottom of her nose all the way to her chin. She tried to shove him away, but he clutched her tight. And so they're in this hallway. There's no one around. It's a frightening situation. That's one of those moments that show you that the monsters are real. But the bravest thing that Audrey does in this book is not to give way in this scene. And it's, I think it's even braver than when she stands up to the tentacle monsters. Because that's somebody you love. And that's hard. Carrie Harris, thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks for having me. Friends, we've been talking a lot lately about our friend and colleague, Dara Horn. We love her new book, People Love Dead Jews, and we love her new podcast, Adventures with Dead Jews. So when we asked her for some disturbing Jewish lore to flesh out our Halloween episode, she did not disappoint. Friends, it's Dara Horn. Hi, I'm Dara Horn, author of the new book, People Love Dead Jews, and creator and host of the podcast, Adventures with Dead Jews. So, of course, it's very on brand for me to be here with you on a Jewish podcast on Halloween to talk about the dead. I got to admit, I never really understood why Halloween was supposed to be scary. Yom Kippur, now that is scary. God is deciding right now whether we should live or die right this minute while I'm trying not to think about eating a snack? Scary! Or how about Passover? The angel of death is coming to kill people's kids and we're going to ward it off by smearing the doorpost with animal blood. Disturbing. But on Halloween, we're supposed to be afraid of dead people. You know, like my grandparents, who I honestly wouldn't mind seeing again. Judaism is a tradition focused on this world, and it's also a tradition that's had more than its share of brushes with death. For Jews, being alive is the scary part, which makes it really hard to write a Jewish ghost story. But today I want to share with you a Yiddish story that pulled it off by turning the whole concept of a ghost story upside down. First, I want to tell you a little about its author, Ayal Peretz, or Yudlamid Peretz in Yiddish. He was one of the greatest Yiddish writers who ever lived, and he got there, obviously, by being a Polish lawyer. Peretz was born in a small town in Poland in 1852 and grew up in a traditional family, but he left that world as a teenager to become a lawyer for the Polish bar. He had this great career in this non-Jewish world until suddenly, in 1888, someone denounced him to the government and he was instantly disbarred. With no explanation, he suddenly lost his profession, his income, and even his home. Since he was broke and homeless, he wound up as a pawn in a rich person's bonkers idea. In 1890, Peretz got a job from a businessman named Jan Block, a rich Jew who had converted to Christianity in order to get ahead. Now that he was a Christian, Block had brilliantly figured out how to make people stop being anti-Semites. His brilliant idea was to send some chump to all the backwater towns in Poland to collect statistics about Polish Jews. Those statistics would prove how much Jews were contributing to Polish society. And then anti-Semites would stop hating Jews. Now all Bloch needed was a chump to send all over Poland to collect his Jewish statistics. That chump was I.L. Peretz. The expedition was a disaster and eventually Peretz got sent home by the Polish police. But Peretz returned from that disaster 
with a sack full of stories that he had collected from all the Jews he met along the way. Those stories gave him a new way of looking at the living and the dead and changed his mind about what was really terrifying about Jewish life. I'm going to share with you one of those stories, which I've abridged and adapted from translations by Helen Frank and Hillel Halkin. It's called The Dead Town. While I was traveling in the provinces, collecting Jewish statistics, I once met a Jew dragging himself step by step through the heavy sand. I felt sorry for him and I offered him a ride. Where are you from? I asked him. From the dead town, he answered. I thought he was joking. Where's that? I asked. Where? He smiled. Right here in Poland. The Poles don't know about it, but it's a real Jewish town. You don't believe me? We get a lot of visitors, and no one ever comes away disappointed. Well, this is the first time I've ever heard of a dead town, I said. I suppose you're not from around here, he said. But it has everything a town needs, even two or three lunatics. We live quite respectably, I assure you. The gravediggers are never out of work. Was he joking, this dried-up bag of bones? His unsmiling face was like yellowed parchment, and there was something odd about his voice. So why do you call it the dead town, I asked. Because it is a dead town. If you like, I'll tell you the whole story. 'Night was falling. Half the sky had turned blood red and fiery. In the other half, the moon swam out of a mist. It was uncanny. We drove into a forest. I glanced at my companion. His face seemed different, sad and serious. The town hung by a hair from the start, he said, because it was built in a place where no Jews were allowed to live. As soon as a minion of Jews had moved in, they built a whole town there against the law. Then they needed to hire someone to bribe the government to make sure no one kicked them out. Some rich Jew there had some pull with the authorities, so they put the whole town in his name and hired an agent to offer the bribe. But then the agent ran off with the money, and then the rich guy died. Then the government came to auction off the town property. That's when something happened that's not to be believed, except on a night like this, my passenger told me as he pointed at the moon. When it was time to auction off the cemetery, the government inspector went to see it before the sale. He put his foot in that holy place, and the dead heard he was there and panicked. The tombstones rocked, and that's when the corpses started coming out of their graves. Do you believe me? I'm no heretic, I said. I believe in the immortality of the soul, but... But what? My passenger asked. I always thought that only the soul survived, I said. The soul flies to the next world while the body decays, and the body can't move without the soul. Well said, he praised me. I'm glad you're an educated Jew. But, my friend, you have forgotten the world of illusion. You say the soul goes to the next world. Fine, but to which part? Some go straight to paradise, others to Gehenna. That's just a manner of speaking, but we're talking about reward and punishment. And why reward and punishment? Because so long as a person lives, he has choices. If he wants to do good, he does good. If he wants to do evil, he does evil. But what's the judgment for a person who slept away his life? A person who never did anything, nothing good or evil, because he never bothered to do anything at all. What about a person who never made any choices, who slept away his life and lived in a dream? What happens to a soul like that? Punishment? What for? It never hurt a fly. Reward? For what? It never even got its feet wet. So what happens to it, I asked. Nothing, my passenger said. It goes on living in a world of illusion. It never even leaves its body. Before it died, it was dreaming that it lived on the earth. Now, it dreams that it lives in the earth. 
What's the difference? No one in our town ever really died because no one in our town ever really lived. No one did either good or evil. There were no sinners and no righteous, only daydreamers in a world of illusion. When such a daydreamer is laid in the grave, it goes right on daydreaming, just in different accommodations. For us, dying was pure comedy. Because if a feather was put under the nose of a live man, would he stir to brush it away? Nope. No one even swatted away flies. After a while, no one even worried about making a living. They gave up worrying about anything at all. There are actually a lot of towns like ours. When a corpse creeps out of its grave, it doesn't even remember that it died. It just goes straight home to supper, my passenger explained. I don't know if it was the moon's fault or if I was losing it, but I asked him, did all of the dead come out of their graves? Who knows, he said. Was anybody collecting statistics? Maybe there were a few heretics who thought it was the final resurrection and decided to stay put just to make a point. But there were definitely a lot of dead people. They rose from their graves and then ran to the nearest forest to get away from that government inspector. As soon as night fell, the corpses came back into the town. Each one went to his home, sneaked in through the door or the window or down the chimney, dressed himself, yawned, and then lay down somewhere to sleep. By the next morning, there was a whole town full of corpses. And what about the living, I asked. Eh, they never even noticed. What's the difference anyway between a dead alive person and a walking corpse? When a son saw his father, he spat three times and said, and here I dreamt that I already buried you and collected the inheritance. When a widow saw her husband, she slapped him for playing a prank on her. She had even wasted money on brand new shrouds. Eventually, the living began to die out since they needed things like air and food and the corpses took their places. Soon, the dead outnumbered the living. By now, they're the leaders of the community. They don't bring children into the world, but whenever anyone dies, they snatch that body out of the grave and then there's a fresh corpse in town. What more could they want? They have no worries and they're certainly not afraid of dying. Nothing bothers them at all because where do worries come from? From knowing. As it says in Ecclesiastes, the more knowledge, the more sorrow. The dead don't need to know anything. They wander in a world of illusion. They keep away from living concerns, so they have no questions, no doubts, no anxieties, no heartache. Our most prominent citizens, our philanthropists, our community leaders, all of them are long dead, long buried. And what about you, my friend? I asked. What are you? Me? I'm half dead, he answered. With that, he jumped out of my wagon and disappeared among the trees. Darahorn's podcast, which you can get wherever you get unorthodox, is called Adventures with Dead Jews. Mazel tovs. Gavriel Savit, do you have a mazel tov this week? I do. Sort of, I don't know, heavy-hearted mazel tov. My sweet, wonderful dog, canine sodic and best of all possible boys, Yitzchak Seymour Savit Woods, is suffering from some very mysterious wounds that are not healing on their own. And so the valiant staff of veterinarians and vet techs at the Brewer Animal Hospital in Springfield, Illinois, are the recipients of very grateful and full-hearted mazel tovs for all their work they're doing for him. And if if you have it in your heart out there to add a name to your your Misha Barkrach for, for a, uh, <laughs> a Wafua Shlema, for a Wafua Shlema, then um, I, I would very much appreciate it. Huge Wafua Shlema to Yitz, who is one of my favorite dogs. I can't in any way top that for profundity or depth of feeling. But I would like to say there seemed to be B'nai Mitzvah firing off all over the Connecticut River Valley. My daughter's been going to a whole bunch of them, and I'll just throw out there Aviva Robbins and Jordan Haas and Avi Dobin, all of whom were called to the Torah 
in full adulthood over the past couple of weeks and, and performed honorably. And we're so grateful to have them as fellow Jewish adults, as Wikipedia would have it, or fellow adults of Eastern European ancestry, as the New York Times would have it. Leah Leibowitz, do you have a uh, Mazel Tov this week? I would like to add a drop of gratitude, a big drop of gratitude this week to friend of the podcast, book maven, literary influencer, and all around great person, Zibby Owens, who selected Tablet's 100 Great Jewish Foods book to her list of, uh, I believe the official title is The Greatest Books Ever Written by Mankind in the History of the World. But if I get the title slightly wrong, the intention is still there. It's a great book. Zibby says so. And we think Zibby is great. And we're deeply grateful. Oh, do I have a mazel tov. Sarah Fredman Ader, our producer extraordinaire, is already a mom extraordinaire. But now she's a mom extraordinaire to another child, a newborn baby boy, whose name we will know by the time we next record. But right now, we just are so happy to welcome him to the world and to give a, a huge mazel tov to all the Fredmans and all the Aders, and in fact, all the Saras out there, because I feel like Sarah Fredman Ader does it for the whole community of Saras. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter and send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave a voicemail of 60 seconds or fewer. 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-Israel-Woodstock. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Joshua Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. To buy swag, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to give us money. And again, please just give something. Help us get there because Stephanie Butnick cannot return until we have a thousand donors bit.ly slash give to unorthodox. Join our Facebook group, follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sara Fredman-Ader. Associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our tablet fellow is Quinn Waller. Artwork is by Esther Werdiger and theme music by Golem. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. And this Halloween, we are all going trick-or-treating dressed up as Natalie Krauss Bivis. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi David Boim. He probably says bomb, but I'm saying it boim at Congregation Shari Kodesh in Boca Raton, Florida. And we come to you from the scattered home recording suites, Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.